If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now and they've got lots of Bibles and you wave and get their attention, they'll put one in your hands. It'll be marked to our passage this morning and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went to be registered, every one to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David, in order to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, that is, glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you so much this morning from the bottom of our heart. Even as we've sung to you, now we pray. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for not only what he brought into the world, but what he has brought into our lives and uncountable hundreds of millions just like us through human history. And we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would freshly fill us right now and for those of us, Lord, for whom this is a very, very familiar story, something that we have known and studied and considered for even decades within our life, would you give us a fresh capacity, a fresh sense of awe and wonder at what you have done in sending us the Savior that you have. And Lord, we pray for each one that stands before you that doesn't know you yet, has not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and entered into the relationship with you that they've been created for. We pray that this morning, that in the teaching of your word, you would add what you've already begun as they've heard the word read and as they've listened to prayer and as they have 
heard us worship you, that now your word would impact them and draw them, Lord, into that wonderful relationship with you that you have for them. Bring them, Lord, into your family, we pray today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Verses 1 through 20 provide us with one of the two greatest records of the birth of Jesus in all of the Bible, the other one contained in Matthew's Gospel. And in this passage in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 communicate to us the significance of his birth. And it is communicated to us in the form of a birth announcement. And all of us are familiar with birth announcements. If uh, you've had a child, you send out birth announcements to other people, to family members, to friends, to let them know about the child that was born. Or if you don't have a child, you've received those from uh, someone else. And so heaven did the same thing at the birth of Jesus. It gave a birth announcement. And we notice that the birth announcement was made to shepherds in verse 8. Shepherds were not the model citizens in the ancient world. Uh, They were a class that was looked down on very, very much. Uh, They were not allowed to testify in a court of law. That's how uh, dubious their character was in in large part. And, uh, And so the shepherds kind of, they had a reputation for, if they came into your neighborhood, stuff just tended to disappear. They were known for being thieves. There's no reason to believe that these shepherds were in that category, and I'm inclined to believe that this birth announcement, not coming to priests, not coming to kings, coming to shepherds, and these shepherds representative of the kind of person that would most enthusiastically embrace Jesus in his public ministry and then down through all of the thousands of years since. We're told in the Gospels that it was the common man who heard him gladly. The rulers, the people of power, and the uppity-ups and higher-ups in religion and all, they were the ones that ended up being his greatest enemies and desiring to put him on the cross. But the common person heard him gladly, and this message was given to the common person. We notice, too, that this birth announcement was made at night, Listen, if you're going to come and send angels in order to declare this birth announcement and you're going to manifest the glory of God, you want the proper background for it, and darkness was the perfect background for it, the darkness of the sin that the world was in, the darkness that the world has been in since the fall of man, and here this glory comes in in the midst of it. Every detail uh, perfect, every detail speaking so much to us. The birth announcement consisted of two phases. First, a lone angel announcing Jesus' birth, and then ultimately he is joined by a heavenly host, literally an angelic army that then offers praise and glory to God the Father as they declare this wonderful chorus of praise to him. And what a birth announcement it was. The circumstances of Jesus' birth were very, very humble. They were very, very simple. No room in the inn. Here they go into this cataluma, this lean-to that isn't even a barn, so to speak, and, and a manger is made his, his bed and, and so forth. But 
in spite of the humbleness of, of his birth and the circumstances of that birth, the excitement of heaven concerning his birth can hardly be contained. I mean, the description within the passage is all lights, camera, action. And one of the things that I like about it when I read this, and I read it like you do this time of the year, but then in the course of the year, is that I realize how excited heaven is over this birth, how excited heaven was in order to offer mankind a Savior, and the excitement that comes forth. Whatever man may think and whatever men may think yet today of the birth of this Savior, heaven is completely excited about the birth of Jesus and felt in giving us a Savior, they were giving some, heaven was giving something priceless to us, and heaven was excited about doing so. And this morning, I want to look specifically at four things from the lips of this single angel and also from the angelic host concerning the specifics of Jesus in this birth announcement. Good tidings, great joy, peace on earth, and glory to God in the highest. And first we look at good tidings. The birth of Jesus into human history was in order to provide mankind with good news. And aren't we in need of good news? I think we've been worldwide, not only in an economic kind of depression, though they say we've been in recovery for years, but a depression for years that has affected people emotionally and mentally. And I've never known such a season in all of my life living in the world. It's a tough place these days on a lot of levels in in. And here we live in the United States of America to speak of nothing of the rest of the world. We're in need of good news. But the world is always in need of good news and always in need of the good news that comes from God. I love that proverb in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 25, speaking of good news, as cold water to a weary soul, soul is, so is good news from a car, far country. And this is the best news of all from a far country, the birth of the Savior. And what is this good news? I'm getting ahead of myself here. We're told in verse 11, it is the provision of a Savior. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the King. Come to save us from what? Well, Matthew's gospel tells us there, and she, as the angel spoke to Joseph, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus is a Savior sent to save us from our sins to save us from the penalty of our sins. And some of this is going to be territory that many of us have been through over and over and over again in our Christian life. But it's good to allow these truths to impact us once again, to never lose our awe of it, to always steer clear in our Christian life of, you know, falling, uh, you know, giving in to the curse of familiarity concerning these majestic things that God has done for us. He was a Savior sent into the world to save us from the penalty of our sins, to save us from the righteous judgment that my sin deserves. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and he said, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. And one day as a Christian, when I stand before God, I will stand before him, and he will not be my judge, but he will be my Savior. And he will be my Savior instead of my judge because Jesus came into the world to save me from the penalty of my sin. Isn't it wonderful as a Christian? And sometimes we live with these realities for long decades in our life, and we don't realize the richness that they bring to our lives until we're forced to stop and think about them. I never spend a moment in my life thinking about hell, worrying about hell, worrying about judgment, worrying about where I'm going to spend eternity after this life. I know where I'm going, and I know what relationship I have with God in this life, and I'm going to carry that same relationship into the life to come. Jesus has come into the world to save us from the judgment that our sin deserves, and what a wonderful thing that it is to walk in that salvation, and what it brings to our lives. Not just one day we're in the, when we're in the glory of heaven, rather than being in judgment, but what it brings to our lives in terms of peace of mind and richness long before the hour of death ever comes. He has come into the world to save us also from the guilt of our sinful past, our sin-filled past. Maybe you didn't have a sin-filled past. I did when I came to the Lord. I think about how wonderful it is to be saved from that guilt. Just this last week, I had this uh, experience where this terrible sin from my past came into my mind. I hadn't thought about it for years, hadn't really considered it at all, and how wonderful it was to be able to say to God, Lord, you already know how terribly sorry I am for that, but I know that you've forgiven me of that sin. Thank you. And I choose to honor the greatness and the completeness of Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of my sin by leaving that sin with you and moving on from it. I think about if we didn't have that ability in our life, how crushing would our sins become, whether accumulated in a day or in a weekend or in a lifetime. Praise the Lord this morning for the forgiveness of sins that are found in that Savior. Not merely as in the Old Testament a ceremonial, a ceremonial covering of sin by these temporary sacrifices, but now because of Jesus to be completely cleansed and my sins separated from me as far as the east is from the west. And he's come into the world to save us not only from the penalty of our sin, but also from the power of sin, the bondage of sin presently in our lives. Again, Paul writing to the Romans, he said in ch chapter 6, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, how many of you remember it? Being slaves of sin, though once you were once slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'll tell you, there's no comparison in the quality of life between being a slave of sin and being a slave of righteousness. And when there comes that point in a human life when we realize that we are now come under the bondage and under the power of sin, and now we want out of it. Once it was fun, 
All sin is pleasurable, the Bible says, for a season, but it's a short season before we realize there's an awesome hook that's associated with that sin. And now I no longer have the sin, but it now has me. And then one day when we wake up and we want out of it and we wonder to ourselves at that very precious moment in a person's life when we're searching for hope and we say to ourselves, who can save me from this sin? Who can set me free from this kind of life? And to realize that Jesus can and Jesus will and he came into the world to do that and that he will give you and me the power to live a holy life and what a gift it is to live that kind of life. Don't ever give up hope in your life if you're not yet a Christian thinking that no change can come, that you're impossible, that you can never be set free from the sin that you introduced into your life or that others introduced into your life. Jesus can do it, and he will do it, and there's millions of people all around the world that can testify to it, and there are um, all hundreds of people in this room alone. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. Jesus is able to save us from the bondage and from the power of sin. But he's a Savior also come into the world to one day save us from the very presence of sin, where we will no longer experience not its temptations, not its reality. We will never know its pull or, or anything about it ever again. My favorite verse in this regard, 2 Peter chapter 3, Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And how wonderful as we sit here today as Christians to know these things, not merely as verses in the Bible, not merely as fodder for sermons, but to know these things as realities in our life and to realize that whatever is our material or our physical condition today, if we get coal in our stocking, so to speak, this Christmas season, that as Christians we've been forgiven of our sins, we possess everlasting life, and that that everlasting life isn't something that I'm going to come to experience one day at the moment of my death, but that I possess it now. Jesus said he, who, who, that whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die, and that is the truth and the reality of our lives. And if you're not yet a Christian, what uh, is ours, the hope that is ours, can also be yours. You remove Jesus from human history, and it's interesting to stop and take at least five minutes and to give it some consideration. Remove that birth, that life, that teaching, that death, that burial, that resurrection. You remove that from human history and how everything changes, not only in terms of history, but changes in terms of our own hearts. There is no good news in the world concerning our deepest needs apart from that birth, that life, that death, that burial, and that resurrection. 
because it is only that life, that death, that burial, that resurrection that provides us with the deepest solutions to the deepest needs in our life, our need for the forgiveness of sin, power over sin, and the hope and the confidence of heaven one day when this life is over. Notice second at verse 14 that this passage teaches us that Jesus was born to provide us with a peace that only he could provide. Jesus declared in the course of his public ministry, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Elsewhere in John 16, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you, that is to his disciples, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And Jesus has told us where it is that we can find peace in this world. And he declared that it's found in him and that he is the lone source of true peace in this world. And why can he offer us peace? when the world cannot offer us peace, when the world altogether and all of its resources and power cannot offer us peace. And the reason that he's able to do it is because in order for us to know true peace, the source of our peace must be greater than all of the things in life that can rob us of our peace. And only Jesus is that greater one. Jesus offers mankind peace with God, the Bible teaches. And this is the peace that comes with knowing that whatever's going on in the world, whatever's going on in my individual life, all of the ups and downs of life, nationally, internationally, personally, this is the peace, the peace with God, the peace of knowing that I'm right with God. And Jesus has pro provided peace with God through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Again, the book of Romans, chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has removed the barrier of sin that separated man from God. As Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, for it pleased the Father that in him all of the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, the possibility of peace with God, think about that, that I can have peace with God, that that was made possible almost 2,000 years ago for you, and there's no need to live one more day at war with God apart from a relationship with God. Who in their right mind today, with all of the problems that are going on in the world, nationally, internationally, all the things that we face on a daily basis, and living our life in the course of, of, of this world and this pilgrimage, who in their right mind would want to be at war with God on top of all of the other problems that we face in life? No, thank you. I've already been there. I've already done that. It's exhausting 
to be at war with God. It's exhausting morally and emotionally and mentally and physically. Peace with God is a priceless thing, and Jesus came into the world to provide it to us. But he also not only offers us peace with God, but he also offers us the peace of God. Peace with God is a spiritual peace. Again, it is the peace of knowing that I am right with him, that I have a relationship with him. The peace of God is the peace that God provides to our hearts and to our minds and to our spirit and to our inner man because of our relationship with him. It is the peace and the freedom from worry that comes with knowing that we're no longer in the world alone in life. We're no longer navigating life on our own, but we are now living it with a heavenly Father who loves us beyond description and that he is for us and that he is always actively present with us. Peace is a wonderful thing. Peace is a priceless thing in this world. And a person can own the whole world, possess all of the power in the world, but if he or she does not have peace, then they are without the capacity to enjoy not only all of the things that they own, but to enjoy anything that they own. The man or the woman who enjoys peace in this life is richer than the richest man or woman in the world who has no peace. It's interesting to me that in the Holy Spirit's account of the birth of Jesus through Luke, that he makes the word Savior there in verse 11 central in the passage to the words joy in verse 10 and peace in verse 14. He makes sure that it is the central truth between these other two realities. And the reason he does so in the passage is because peace and joy are not self-existent things in life. They are the byproduct of receiving heaven's Savior. Now, something interesting has happened in my lifetime, uh, to a greater degree at least, and it's interesting to observe what uh, man has done in the course of, of 2,000 years to what is a very simple uh, three-point commentary on the birth of Christ in, in, from heaven, and it centers upon three great words, joy and Savior and peace. Joy and Savior, peace. And the world that we live in today has held on to two of the major themes within our culture. It has held on to the theme or the truth or the reality of joy and peace, but it now largely ignores the critical central theme of a Savior. For instance, you can readily go to any Hallmark store and try and find a Christmas card. And there's no shortage of Christmas cards that speak of this time of year as a time for joy. So you'll find one that is on the insert in the inside. It'll say something like, may joy fill your lives this season and throughout the year. There's no shortage of Christmas cards that speak of the theme of peace. 
They'll say something like, may peace fill your lives during this holiday season and throughout the coming year. And Christmas has increasingly become about joy and peace rather than about a Savior. And the problem with that is that there is no joy and there is no peace apart from Savior because it is out of his salvation that those things flow. And thus joy and peace become these nice thoughts, these nice concepts in the human condition rather than the reality that God knows that they need to be in our lives and the reality that he wants each of us to experience of these things in our lives. Joy and peace are not self-existent things. They are the byproduct of receiving God's Savior, and they are wonderful words that represent a spiritual reality that is found only in him. Now finally, verse 10, Jesus has provided the world with great joy in his birth. And regarding the subject of joy, of course, it's important to understand that there's a vast difference between what the world calls happiness and what the Bible calls joy. Joy is deeper. It is something that is weightier than happiness. Happiness, as the world defines it typically, is based almost entirely upon our circumstances. When our circumstances are good, I'm happy. When my circumstances are not good, then I am unhappy. And so happiness is this wonderful thing. I'm not putting it down, but it is constantly coming and going in our lives depending upon our circumstances. For instance, you're very, very happy because someone sent you a Christmas card with $1,000 in it, and you are so happy. And then you continue to open your stack of mail. And two envelopes later, there's an insurance bill for $1,200. And what happened to all of your happiness and all of the things you were going to buy with the $1,000? It flies away because it fluctuates with the circumstances within our life. In contrast, joy is something that comes from God. It has its source in God. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the book of Galatians teaches us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so forth. And because it is God, has God as its source rather than circumstances, joy is something that can exist in our life despite the circumstances within our life. Paul wrote about it when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and he said, you have become followers of us and of the Lord and have received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You can have joy even in much affliction because the source of joy are the blessings that God brings into our life and the promises of God which never change. Our joyous Christians... It's deep, it's abiding because it has God and his promises as its source. And the promises of God and the blessings of God lie beyond the reach of life's circumstances. They can never be changed. They can never be diminished by the changing circumstances of life. For instance, we possess the joy of our salvation, 
No circumstance in life can change that fact that we are saved and can touch that joy. That joy lies beyond the reach of anything that we will ever face in life. And then there is the joy of our sins being forgiven, of a relationship with God, of being a new creation, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the confidence, the knowledge that we are one day going to be in heaven. All of these things are a constant source of joy within our lives because all of them lie firmly beyond the reach of any circumstance or any trial that we might face in life. As it's spoken in the words of an old song that I heard years ago, and I liked what it said and never forgot it, the world didn't give it to me, and the world can't take it away. The world can take away in a moment whatever it gives, but the world can never take away from us what God uniquely gives to us as his children. All, all of these things are a constant source of joy and they lie beyond the reach of any and all circumstances in life. If God and the things of God are the source of my joy, then joy can be a constant in my life because he never changes and his promises never change. I remember very vividly the joylessness and disappointment that I used to experience as a young boy concerning Christmas while in elementary school before being exposed to the Bible and to the true meaning of Christmas. And I remember the day after Christmas being the single worst day of the year in my mind. Our Christmas was made up of, we would buy a small Christmas tree and set it up in the house. And at school there would be this Christmas present exchange with, among the students within the classroom. You, could, you had a 50 cent limit on it. You couldn't spend over 50 cents. And almost all of us got one of those little lifesaver boxes of lifesavers because they were like 48 cents. And uh, you could get in under that. And we would make these ornaments in, in the, the classroom and Santa Claus ornaments and so forth. And Christmas Day would come and there were never any presents. It's just the way that it was. My sister would always send presents. She was much older than us. But we always opened them a couple of weeks. Whenever we, as soon as we got them, it was always closed and we needed them. And so we took them. So the Christmas would come and there'd be no presents. And we'd have this dinner just a little more elaborate than normal. And uh, then we'd sit around and watch TV until it was time to go to bed. Nothing spiritual about it at all. And I remember going outside. I didn't even have to wait till the day after Christmas. I remember later in the afternoon on Christmas, before the sun would set, I would go outside and, and I'd think to myself, and, and, and what was that all about? All of that build up, and then the next day is empty as can be. How disappointing. Could, could, why in the world do we do this to ourselves? No real substance at all. And I'd stand outside in the cold and I would throw rocks in an empty field that adjoined our property. And, I think to, and I'd think to myself that it would have been better if there was no such thing as Christmas. If all it did was this great 
build up to this big Christmas day and then nothing, no lasting anything. And I'll tell you, it seemed cruel to me. You said, what a melancholy kid. Listen, what can I say about it? But I figured it out pretty early. I thought to myself, well, no wonder everyone moves on so quickly to celebrating New Year's in order to forget all of this and then move on to the next thing. And it seemed like, all right, that's how you blot out the disappointment of such a great expectation and then such a nothing is to think about the chips and the clam dip or the French onion dip or whatever Christmas, uh, New Year's Eve is going to be. But it wasn't just Christmas that seemed meaningless and cruel to me in the days of my youth. The disappointment concerning Christmas was really just a microcosm of life. And I remember back in 1969, I was still in junior high school at that time, and hearing a song on the radio that really impacted me. And it captured exactly what I felt, not only about Christmas, but about all of life. And the song was, Is That All There Is? It was sung by Peggy Lee, and many of you remember it. The lyrics go like this. I remember when I was a very little girl, and she didn't really sing it, she spoke this part of the song. I remember when I was a very little little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced through the burning building out to the pavement. And I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was over, I said to myself, Is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. And when I was 12 years old, my daddy took me to a circus, the greatest show on earth. And there were clowns and elephants and dancing bears. And a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? And then I fell in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. And we would take long walks by the river or just sit for hours gazing into one another's eyes. And we were so very much in love. And then one day he went away, and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend, then let's keep. I know what you must be saying to yourself. If that's the way she feels about it, then why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment because I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you that when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. One of the most haunting and honest songs ever written in my mind. And it is not the glorification of booze 
or of parting. The lyric, break out the booze and have a ball, was not the first choice of the writer. It was the conclusion of a thinking person to living life in this world where there is no true meaning or purpose to be found in it. And the life experience in the song included fire, that is tragedy. It included circus, entertainment. It included love, human relationship, and none of them provided the satisfaction or landed the songwriter on the shore of the meaning of life. All life had done for the songwriter was to fill him with disillusionment and the desire to escape any, all of it any way that he could, even if only for small blocks of hours at a time. And then finally, he explains that he'll never kill himself because he's convinced that it will only end in disappointment as well. It's interesting to realize that Peggy Lee won a Grammy for that song in 1970 for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. The song went platinum, sold well over a million copies at the time. It reached number 11 on the U.S. Pop Singles Chart and number one on the Adult Contemporary Billboard Chart. And when one of the writers of the song, Jerry Lieber, was tempted to give the song... Peggy Lee was not the first choice for singing it. His first choice for singing it was a young woman in her mid-twenties at the time by the name of Barbara Streisand. Peggy Lee was then in midlife. She had endured a terrible, terrible childhood. She had been through, by 1969, four failed marriages. And she said to him, when she heard that he might be giving the song to someone other than her, she said, if you give this to anyone else, it's your life, this is mine. She said, this is the story of my life. This is the story of my life. And why did the song strike such a chord with so many people, including Peggy Lee herself? because it describes what everyone knows deep down in our hearts and is the message of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes that life lived apart from a relationship with God is empty and frustrating. As the prayer St. Augustine wrote so long ago, so perfectly put it, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And it's true. There really is a cross-shaped hole in the heart of every person that can only be filled by Jesus. And we can pour the entire physical and emotional and intellectual universe into that hole and still be filled and left with that gnawing sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. Because until we come to know Christ, there is something more to life than I have experienced, and it is the most important thing in life and that is a personal relationship with God, the relationship with God that we have been 
created for. One of the songs that will be sung to God in the glory of heaven in eternity is recorded in John chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 4 where we're told that the four and twenty elders fall down before him who sat upon the throne and they worship him that lived forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things. And then here it is, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's why we were created, for the pleasure of God and relationship with God. And how does a person come to experience the forgiveness and the peace and the joy and the satisfaction and the everlasting life that we've been talking about this morning? It's by receiving God's gift of a Savior to you, by coming to God in the honesty of your own heart in this room this morning and saying to God something like this, God, I am a sinner and I confess my sin to you. I've been less than perfect all of my life and I believe your assessment that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. But I also believe what your Bible says and that you loved me so much that you sent your son into this world to die on the cross, to pay, in, pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins, and that he was buried and rose again on the third day. And I believe that he is the Savior, and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I put my trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins this morning. And when you do that, the greatest miracle that a person can ever experience will occur in your life. God will come into your life by the Holy Spirit and bring the joy and bring the peace and bring the everlasting life and bring the power and bring the hope that we so desperately need and God knows that we need and will be born again by the Holy Spirit and able now, possessing the capacity to have relationship with God. No gift does us any good unless we receive it until we make it our own. Not even a gift from God. It must be opened. It must be received. Again, let me read to you from verse 11, God's invitation to you personally. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do it this morning and then enter into not only the meaning of Christmas but into the very meaning of life. The birth of Jesus has provided the world with an incomparable good news and joy and peace and salvation. And it's as desperately needed today as ever it was 2,000 years ago. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior this morning. We grow so accustomed, and wonderfully so, to the blessings that are our daily portion because of him. We live in them, Lord. We move, we breathe in them, Lord. And we're so thankful for them. And we're thankful for Christmas time, a time that is set aside to just freshly reconsider and freshly appreciate what you have done for us in the sending of your Son. We join that heavenly host 2,000 years ago, Lord, in their crying out to you, glory to God in the highest. We glorify you, Lord, this morning. We magnify you. We give you our praise. We give you our thanks for the birth of that Savior who then became our Savior. We bless you for salvation. We bless you for peace. We bless you for hope, Lord. We bless you for joy this morning and all of it found in him. We praise you for him, Lord, and we do so in his name, in Jesus' name.